of our church. This is some of the first online teaching we have ever done. And I am glad you are here. And if you're like me, you don't, this isn't where we want to be. And it isn't where we thought we would be a month ago. But it's exactly where God wants us to be. He knows all about this pandemic. He knows all about the restrictions and the isolation that we're feeling. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we can trust Him at this time. So here we are gathering through digital media. And we need to pray that God uses this. We're thankful that we have this opportunity to use this kind of technology to gather even though we're scattered. And we're thankful, Lord, and ask the Lord to uh, make sure it works. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and do that right now. Father in heaven, we come and we do acknowledge your greatness, your goodness in the midst of this very difficult time. We praise you, Lord, that you are great enough, that you rule over all of it, and yet you care enough that you understand each of our heartbeats and the number of hairs on our heads. And Lord, we pray and lament with the fear, the anxiety, and even the loss of life, not just in our circle, not just potentially in our city, but Lord, all around the world. People are entering into eternal destiny, many of whom have never heard of you or have not received you. And so, Father, we ask that this teaching would be a means of encouragement, that this teaching would be a means of life for those who need to see Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Lord, open our hearts that we may be eager to hear, quick to obey from the heart all that we hear from your word. You speak to us and glorify your Son. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me tell you, right now, I promise you are more comfortable than I am. This is a little awkward. This is a little different, but I am excited. Excited for the opportunity to be able to stay connected uh, with our church and even to the wider community, whoever's listening. Uh, I hope that you will continue to join with us for now. This time period, this teaching is a replacement for our discovery hour, usually from 930 to 1030. I hope that you will make it a routine to join us here each Sunday. Lord willing, we'll be here continuing to teach. And I would just encourage you, if you're a member or an attender of LifeBridge, to just develop the routine of getting up, getting ready, gathering around. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can open them and have your notes and be ready to study. But if you're not an attender, if you're not a member of LifeBridge, and just somehow through a divine appointment you're watching this now, whether you're a believer or a seeker or somewhere in between that, we want to welcome you as well. And our desire as a church during this um, you know, very difficult time is to be a minister and a ministry to those who are hurting, searching, and looking. So let's dive in this morning. 
You can go to wearelifebridge.com and look under messages and you can find uh, where this series has started. We've already taught two lessons in the series, but that's okay. Don't worry about that. You can go online and catch up. You can also go to the New Life podcast on iTunes and see previous lessons. But let me say this. Also, at wearelifebridge.com, under the messages, this series is the gospel according to Isaiah. And if you go there, uh, I have the lesson notes for today's lesson already there. And you can download them and you can take notes and you can watch. If you have a printer at home, you can print them out. But uh, those notes are uploaded and are available to you. But if this is your first time, don't panic. This is a great passage for you to dive into. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah 52, and we're going to look at Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And so as you turn there, Isaiah 52, 13, I just want to make three observations about this passage. We're going to be in this passage, Lord willing, for the next five weeks. Right here, 930. I hope you join us. But the first thing I want you to notice is the split in this passage between chapter 52 and 53, which is probably the worst chapter division in all of the Bible. Now, don't panic about that. That doesn't mean the Bible is in error. Chapters and verse numbers are not inspired. But whoever divided this up there, it's one of the most horrible divisions of a chapter you will find. The second thing I want you to see is that this entire passage that we'll be working through is probably the most significant, maybe the most significant chapter in all the Bible, and certainly the most significant in all the Old Testament. It is the heart of the book of Isaiah, and it is the heart of the gospel as revealed in the Old Testament. In fact, many believe it's the most accurate, detailed uh, explanation of the gospel that is found in the Bible in terms of substitutionary atonement and the sacrifice, the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. And I want you to keep in mind as we work through this passage that this is all predicted 700 years before Jesus of Nazareth was even born. And what's amazing about this passage is much of it is in the past tense And the reason is God's predictions are so sure of fulfillment that he speaks of them as if they've already been fulfilled. And so this is a significant chapter. And then one more thing before we dive into today's message is the structure of the passage. It's 15 verses divided up into five stanzas of three verses each. And so each week we'll be taking three verses and looking at what this great passage of Isaiah 53, and I'll always call it Isaiah 53, even though it includes the last part of chapter 52. And it's there that I want you to turn. If you have your Bibles, you can look at uh, chapter 52, and we're going to read verses 13 through 15. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. Follow along, listen, and let's check out. Uh, these three verses, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, 
So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Now, these three verses are packed. They're short, but they're packed full with a lot of truth. And it's really a simple subject. So here's the main idea of this, these three verses. And it's simply this. The sovereign success of God's servant. Behold my servant. The sovereign success of God's servant. And they answer a simple question. How did God's servant succeed in saving a people out of many nations? How did God's servant succeed in saving a people out of many nations? And we're going to see the answer is fivefold. And so let me give you the outline. He succeeded in saving a people due to wise action, universal exaltation, brutal humiliation, Blood redemption and gospel proclamation. So that's where we're going in this passage. So let's look at the question. How did God's servant succeed in saving a people out of many nations? The first thing I want you to see is it was due to wise action. He will pursue God's will with an obedient heart. Look again at verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. And the key word there is prosper. Now, in some of your Bibles, you may, may, it may be be successful. He will be successful. He will act wisely. He will succeed. Why are they all so different? It's because they're all right. They are all correct. The word means all of that. The basic idea is my servant will act wisely. But here's the thing about wisdom in the Bible. Okay, Wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective, and living accordingly. And so when we live life from God's perspective, God says, you will succeed in the end. And that's what the servant will do. He will act wisely. And basically, as you trace this word of success through the Bible or acting wisely to succeed, you find that God repeatedly tells his servants, Moses, David, Uh, All throughout the Bible, Joshua, he tells them that if you will do my work, my way, according to my word, you will succeed. But here's the thing about all those men. None of them were perfect. None of them were sinless. None of them were perfectly successful. They all failed in some way. But the thing about God's servant here is he will succeed in a perfect way. He will fulfill God's will and never falter and never fail. But here's the question. What's the mission that he's going to succeed in? What is it that God wants him to do that he's going to succeed in? Well, this is called a servant song of Isaiah, and there's four of them. In the book of Isaiah, this is the fourth one. And to really find what the mission is, you've got to go back to the first three songs. And we don't have time and won't take the time to do that. You can go to wearelifebridge.com under messages. We did a whole series in the New Life class about the servant songs. 
But when you look back at those songs, you find in Isaiah 50, the mission was to be a fully devoted Christ follower who perfectly obeys God's will from the heart. But you go back to the next song in Isaiah 49, and you find that the mission is to restore Israel to covenant blessings and to reach the nations with the light of salvation. And if you go back to the first servant song in Isaiah 42, you find that the mission is to restore God's mission, God's kingdom on earth and to let justice flow like a river, let peace replace war, and let love for God and for one another fill this earth. So in a way, it's moving in a wide fashion. It starts, someone needs to step up and obey God perfectly in order to restore Israel to covenant blessings and reach the nations, ultimately to bring God's kingdom on earth so that no more death, no more disease that hits us right now, no more disease, no more tears, no more curse, and God's redemptive plan is fulfilled. And so that's the mission, and here's the good news. His mission will succeed. And the reason we know is because God is predicting it as though it has already happened 700 years before Jesus came and more than 2,700 years and counting before He's come again. But we also know it because of the perfect, wise, obedient obedience of the servant will fulfill it. So here's the question. How is He going to succeed? By acting wisely. And how will he be rewarded for that success? We see that in verse 13 as well. He's going to be rewarded with universal exaltation. The servant will press on in light of his future reward. So look again at verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Here we have, we see just how greatly he will be rewarded and how high he will be exalted. And Isaiah, or God, through Isaiah, uses three words to emphasize that. He's going to be really exalted by three, times by three. Let's look at the first two words, high and lifted up. These are significant words, and here's why. High and lifted up is only used four times in the Bible. All four are in Isaiah, and all four always refer to God. And in fact, the first time it's used, it's super significant, is Isaiah 6.1, where Isaiah sees the vision of God himself high and lifted up on his throne with his train fully filling the temple and filling the whole earth with his glory. And the seraphim are saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, high and lifted up. And so what we see here is that same wording is being applied to the servant. So what's that tell us? That he's going to have an equality with deity. But look at the third word. He's not only high and lifted up as equal with God, he is greatly exalted, or you could say exceedingly 
exalted. And the idea here is he's not only lifted up high, but he remains in that state and he is above everything and everyone. So what do we get from that? We see that his exaltation is not only an equality with deity, but it's a sovereignty over humanity. He is sovereign over all people. So what do we take away from that? This servant is now being treated, honored, and exalted as equal with God and yet fully human. We have here the God-man. And who else in all of history could fulfill this prediction other than Jesus of Nazareth? Think about this. He was raised high. After dying, he was raised high in his resurrection. He was lifted up in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And he was exalted exceedingly with the honor of sitting at the right hand of God. In fact, he says after his resurrection in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me. And so here we have Jesus Christ. And yet, ultimately... We haven't seen him exalted over everything because ultimately his exaltation will come at the consummation of his coming kingdom. And so he's exalted now, but he's not seen at the right hand of the Father. And one day, and this is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day he's going to come and be exalted over all the earth. Now, I bet you by now you're thinking, of a certain passage in the book of Philippians, if you're familiar with the Bible, and it's Philippians chapter 2. And really, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives a great commentary on what's happening here. Let me read you, and you can turn in your Bibles there, if you have them at home. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Listen to what Paul says. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross death. For this reason, God also, listen, God highly exalted him. There's Paul, uh, Isaiah's wording. Highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how is the servant going to succeed? By taking wise action and by universal exaltation over everyone and everything. But what is the path he will take to his success? What is the path he will take to his success? And it's a shocking one. The path to success is brutal, brutal humiliation. He will persevere through present suffering to get to the ultimate reward of exceeding exaltation. Look at verse 14. Notice what Isaiah says here. 
Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now, I'll admit right here, as we work through this chapter, as important as it is, there's a lot of hard translation and interpretive issues. And this is one of them right here. This is not an easy verse to translate. And in fact, I think many of the other English translations do a better job here for us. Let me read the Christian Standard Bible, verse 14. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So it's like God is speaking and, and he, he's, he's speaking to the servant, but then he stops and says, look, I just want to tell the rest of you listening in just how appalling, how brutal his humiliation was. And here's the key word that you want to see. The key word is appalled, appalled, or astonished, or the Net Bible even says horrified. They were horrified at his appearance. And here's the key thing about this word. This word, when you, when you uh, trace it through the Old Testament, this word refers to people who look at a city or a nation that has been utterly destroyed, that has been devastated, burnt over, defeated in battle, and just ruined as a city or as a people. And people look at that and they're astonished. They're horrified. They're appalled. And here's what they think in their minds. Man, their God must have been really angry at them. Their God must have forsaken them. That must be a people who were unfaithful and rebellious to their God. Look at how they have been judged. Well, that's what's happening here. People are looking, and I think primarily, initially, the fulfillment of this is the nation of Israel, as we'll talk about in the weeks to come. They looked at God's servant, and they said, this guy must be under God's judgment. This guy is brutally humiliated, publicly shamed. And here's what they saw when they looked at him. This is what they saw. His appearance was marred or disfigured. And again, this is a key word for us. And basically it means they're saying two things about him. First of all, he is so brutally humiliated, he hardly looks like a man anymore. They're basically looking at him saying, is this a person? Is this even a person? I can't recognize him. And hopefully you've never experienced this or seen this, but if somebody's really brutally beaten in the face, They become disfigured, marred. They're they're unrecognizable. But more than this, he is so beaten and he is so humiliated, he doesn't hardly look human anymore. Is he even human? And I think the implication here is this. He has been so humiliated and so shamed, the idea is we wouldn't even treat our dogs this way. He doesn't even look human. This isn't even human how bad this is. Now, what's interesting about that word disfigured that we're talking about is that it's, all, it's used in Leviticus to refer, uh, it's a similar noun, a similar word from the same family, 
It's used in Leviticus to refer to an animal who is so blemished and so imperfect, it cannot be offered up as sacrifice unto God. In other words, the animal is unworthy of being accepted in God's eyes. They are looking at God's servant and they're saying, look, his suffering is so bad, he must be judged. He must be judged as a great sinner. His humiliation is so great, God must be rejecting him. And his person is so beaten, surely he can't be our deliverer. He is unworthy. He is worthy of rejection. And surely this isn't God's deliverer. But here's the irony. Here's the irony. This is exactly how God's servant will succeed and be highly exalted. Let's go back to Philippians 2. Let me read Philippians 2, 8 and 9 again. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus was scourged and beaten and whipped. He was disfigured. He was marred. He was publicly shamed. They looked at him and said, if you're Messiah, if you're God's servant, come down off of that cross. But look at verse 9. For this reason also, God, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So here's the question. How does God's servant succeed on his mission? It's going to be by wise action. He's going to faithfully and fully obey God and without error, without sin. It's going to be by a universal exaltation. He will press on in spite of suffering and rejection and shaming, and he will ultimately be exalted as God and as man. And it will be accomplished by brutal humiliation. He will persevere through his present sufferings. And we know this from the book of Hebrews where it says, For the joy set before him, that exaltation, he endured the cross. Brutal humiliation. So the question becomes, why was such brutal humiliation required by God of his servant? And why would God allow it to happen to his servant? And let's just take a time out here. I bet many of you may be asking that question right now. You may be wondering and asking, why is God allowing such heartache right now? People are dying. We're nearly at lockdown phase, an entire country like Italy is suffering tremendously. China has suffered tremendously. People are suffering emotional, physical, mental, emotional. Jobs are being lost. The threat of a global depression. And you might be asking, God, why? Why such suffering? Why is, are you allowing this? And I don't pretend to have the answers to all that. And God 
certainly doesn't always give us the answers to our why questions. But I can tell you this, the reason He allowed His servant to suffer helps us understand the suffering we're going through right now. And so let's look at the reason. Why did God allow His servant to suffer? It was for blood redemption. It was for blood redemption. And here's the idea. The servant will provide redemption for Israel and many nations. And the answer to this is in verse 15. So let's kind of review where we've been. 13 is the wise action that will result in ultimate exaltation. Verse 14, though, the path to exaltation is brutal humiliation. But look at verse 15. Thus, thus, as a result of the brutal humiliation, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. In other words, even the most powerful the most mighty, the most important people on the planet will be shocked into silence when they see one who was brought so low end up being exalted so high. So think about this. Let's kind of put 14 and 15 together. Just as many in Israel will be appalled, shocked, horrified by the servant's brutal humiliation in a similar way, Many Gentile kings will be astonished at his glorious exaltation. So let me put it this way. Dwayne Lindsay, Bible scholar, put it this way. The servant will be humbled below what is human to be exalted above what is human. And what's the meaning of all this? Why is God doing this this way? Why does success come this way? Verse 15 tells us he's going to sprinkle many nations. He's going to sprinkle many nations. Now, again, this is a key word that we find in Leviticus. And what this word means, he's like, sprinkle, what's he going to do? Is that hand sanitizer? Well, sort of. It's kind of God's hand sanitizer. It's blood sprinkling to purify from sin. When you look at this word in the book of Leviticus, it's, it speaks of sprinkling lepers seven times to show that they have been purified from their uncleanness. It's used of sprinkling the temple altar seven times so it can remain in the presence of a holy God. And get this, it's used of actually sprinkling blood seven times on the high priest and the priests in order that they may enter the Holy of Holies and serve and worship and praise before the thrice holy God of Isaiah 6.1. So what's the point? Do you see the irony? And we'll talk more about this next week. So join us next week. But the irony is this. Many looked at his brutal humiliation and concluded he must be, God must be punishing him for his sins. When in reality, God was purif- punishing him in order to purify many of their sins. Do you see the irony of that? Oh, look how he's suffering. He must be sinful. 
When in reality, we look at his suffering and we realize that's how sinful we are. His punishment was for our purification and for our consecration so that we would have our sins forgiven and be able to enter pure and acceptable into the very presence of God and to function as priests and kings in God's presence. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1 and 2. Here's what he says. Listen to this. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 is writing literally to scattered Christians, just like we're scattered right now, And here's what he said to them. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You see, setting apart for God's purposes to obey Jesus Christ. There's the wise action of a faithful disciple and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure So we have a really radical reversal in these verses. There's extreme suffering that results in exalted glory on a global scale. There was unexpected exaltation, but it only came after unrivaled humiliation. So here's the big question to end with. How are these kings who are shocked into silence. How are these many nations, which, by the way, in Greek, that Hebrew word is ethne. Jesus had all authority in heaven and earth and said, go make disciples of every nation, every ethne. How will these ethne, these people groups, hear the good news of the sovereign servant who has succeeded in accomplishing salvation for sinners. And Isaiah tells us it's going to be through gospel proclamation. The people of the servant will proclaim to the nations the good news of God's salvation through His suffering, sovereign servant. It's going to be His servants sent out to proclaim the good news that the servant has come and he has lived a sinless life and he has died as a perfect, unblemished, sinless sacrifice in the place of sinners. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But he was raised up high through the resurrection, ascended, lifted high to the right hand of the Father, and there He reigns and rules until He's coming again. This is the good news of the gospel. And so look at verse 15. Look at the end of verse 15. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Here's what what I want you to understand. Here's what Isaiah wants us to understand. Here's what God wants us to understand. It's this. This great chapter of Isaiah 53 answers the greatest question facing humanity. Greater than will cancer ever be cured. Greater than will this virus ever be stopped. As important as those questions are. It's the greater question. 
And the greatest question of all is this. How can a holy God declare sinners right with Him and still remain a just God? How can a righteous God declare the unrighteous to be righteous and for that God to not be unrighteous in doing that? And this is the answer. The answer is this suffering servant. The answer is found in his sovereign success of the suffering servant. And here's what I want you to see in the last end of the last part of this. The answer to our question of salvation, the answer to our question is an answer that not even the kings of the earth, the strongest, the richest, the wisest, the greatest, they could never come up with this. This is news that God must reveal to us. God must give sight to blind eyes. God must give hearing to deaf ears. God must soften hard hearts because this is good news that only God could reveal. But here's the sobering reality. It's good news that once we receive it with God's grace and enablement, we get to proclaim it to the nations. We get to proclaim it to the nations. You say, how do I know that? How do we know that? Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 tells us this is exactly what this verse means. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 15. And we're going to read Romans 15, verses 15 through 21. And we're going to find at the end of this great passage that Paul quotes the end of verse 15 that we've been looking at. So I hope you have your Bibles there. Romans 15, verse 15. But I have written very boldly to you, he's writing to Christians in Rome, on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace of that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, to be a minister of the suffering servant to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's using all that language from Leviticus and from Isaiah, and he's saying, look, the offering up, is the offering of people groups who have come to know Jesus. They have been sprinkled by His blood through the proclamation of the gospel. And here's what he says in verse 18. For I will not presume to speak, to, to speak of anything except what Christ... Ha- uh, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. There's that wise action. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Then he says in verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah 
verse 15. They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So how do we wrap this up? How do we end this? Here's the application. We should shout the good news that the servant has had sovereign success in saving a people out of many nations. The suffering servant experienced sovereign success to save a people out of the nation. The gospel enables us to be saved by this sovereign Savior and to share in his success as his servants. And I just want to end with this. Listen, there's a not yet to his exaltation. He is seated at the right hand of God, but he has not yet come to earth and and been exalted where every knee will bow and every knee and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So there's a not yet to that in Philippians 2, 10 through 11. But there is a now opportunity for personal transformation. If we repent of us being in charge of our lives to become a servant of God and a servant of Jesus Christ. But to do that, we have to acknowledge that we fall short in serving God, loving God, and loving others. And we need to turn from our sinful lifestyle and our self-assurance, being a servant of self, to being a servant of Jesus Christ. And by faith, receive His perfection, His obedience, and receive His blood redemption so that we may be cleansed from our sin in order that we may be successful servants of God just like He is. So what does this mean for you right now? Well, I would encourage you to download the notes at wearelifebridge.com under messages, under the series, the gospel according to Isaiah. And I've got five points of application. Basically, what we're to do is what the successful servant did. We're to pursue wise action, which if you don't know Christ, is to receive him this morning. If you do know Christ, then persevere. Persevere in this time of humiliation, in this time of humbling in this time of suffering to a degree and persevere through it and then praise Christ. Praise Christ for providing you redemption and press on through that suffering with his resurrection power and then finally proclaim the good news across the street around the world. Now, I know we can't get out. We're headed for lockdown more than likely, but... We have social media. We have this technology. We can just pick up a phone. We can text. Let's reach out because people more than ever at this time are asking the big questions about why this is happening and is there hope, is there life beyond death. And the good news is, is we have a suffering servant who has sovereign success in saving people from their sins. And that can be you this morning. We'd love to hear from you here at LifeBridge. So uh, you can message us through Facebook. And also, if you'll download those notes, I I have three suggestions for family worship. Going forward, I hope each week 
to have three practical suggestions for you as parents, caregivers, to help your kids experience this lesson in a way that's relevant to them. So download those notes, three suggestions for family worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your grace, your great care. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that many will hear of him, of his sovereign success, of his sacrifice for our sins, and how he is exalted and he rules over disease, over death, and over our enemy, the devil. And one day he's coming back, and every knee will bow, some for salvation, some for judgment. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the sovereign Savior who succeeded in saving a people for himself. Lord, we give you the praise and the glory for this. Amen.